passage is from Acts chapter 16, verses 13 to 34. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of, them, one of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house, and she persuaded us. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Hello, church. It's good to be back uh, with you on this uh, Mother's Day uh, service on this Sunday. Uh, we've been away, uh, well, as we welcome a new family member, Hudson will uh, you'll get to meet him soon, uh, hopefully uh, next week. Uh, Jess and um, Ryan and Hudson are home uh, resting today. But Cohen's downstairs. He's been around um, uh, with the kids' ministry. Uh, but yeah, it's been good uh, to be with our family, uh, spending time with them. But we've missed you as a church, uh, worshiping together. So really happy uh, to be back and to bring God's message to you, uh, with you uh, th this morning. And happy Mother's Day uh, on this uh, Sunday. And I'm fully aware, our leadership and our church are fully aware uh, that some of uh, that this day could be tough uh, for some of you, 
uh, those who have uh, strange relationships uh, with your own moms or with your kids, those that have lost your mom, uh, those that have lost your kids, uh, those that are going through uh, struggles of infertility and trying to have a kid and wanting to have a kid and, and everything uh, in, in between. Um, and, and my heart, especially with those at this morning that are hurting, uh, thinking about mistakes that they've made in the past uh, as they struggled with relationships and also uh, with pregnancies uh, as well. So uh, we're fully aware uh, on this uh, Mother's Day Sunday that it is joyful as we celebrate motherhood and all our mother figures uh, that we have in, uh, in our lives, but we also know that it comes uh, tough uh, for, for many of you, and we just want to acknowledge that. Uh, so on this uh, Mother's Day, uh, I was prepping for this message a few, few weeks ago, knowing that I'll be on pat leave and knowing that I'll be super rusty uh, coming back <laughs> on, on this Sunday. What is, it that, what is it that God would have for us to hear from his word this morning. And my mind, as I was prepping for his message, just think about life and how grueling it is, motherhood, how grueling it is. And many of us are just living and breathing every single day, how tough life can be. And my, I came across a story back that, about the Summer Olympics that happened back in 1984. Uh, it was back in Los Angeles. Maybe some of you would remember this. Uh, Canada did pretty well, winning 10 golds, 18 silvers, and 16 bronze medals that uh, year, but the highlight, the highlight of that year was that it was the first time in Olympic history that the women were allowed to race the marathon distance. It was the first time that this event was ever happened, and they had a big ceremony. The women from all the different countries were bearing their flags before the actual race, they're representing their nation. Uh, they ran in it, and what, you know, they didn't have all the technology that we had today. They ran in what we call, you know, retro shoes now, right? We wear these now, uh, you know, it's kind of coming back. Uh, the high socks, you know, you know what I'm talking about. The high white socks and the Reeboks over the, you know, it's all coming back. This was in the 80s. They didn't, that wasn't fashion back then. That's actually what they raced in. Uh, these are the shoes that they used to race in. And, and it's, it's fascinating. They didn't have a GPS watch to keep them on, on tempo, on track. They had a car. Uh, imagine original Ghostbusters, that kind of car, with this huge plaque, this, this actual clock on top of the car. That, ran in, that drove in front of them, and they're racing and following this clock. Uh, and that year, Joan Benoit of the U.S., she won, and she ran the marathon in two hours and 24 minutes. Uh, the BMO last week, the person that won it, ran it in two hours and 19, so it's pretty good uh, in, in these kind of uh, conditions, these shoes. Uh, what's even more fascinating with this Joan Benoit, she's in her 60s now, and a couple of years ago, she ran a marathon in three hours. Uh, so she's still going. Olympians are just built different. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how she's able to do it. But there's also another story, and you might remember this uh, if you watched the Olympics that year. It was another Olympian named Gabriella Anderson Scheiss of Switzerland. She was 39 at that time, and she was running her first and only Olympics. And she's a champion in her own right. Uh, she's won two marathons the year before that in 83, uh, the California Marathon. And she ran that in two hours and 33 minutes. And then the Twin City Marathon, she ran in two hours and 36 minutes, 42.2K in two hours and 36 minutes. But this time in L.A., it was a little bit different. They've been to L.A., it's humid, it's hot, uh, and they were running in something like 30-degree weather, 30-degree weather at that time. And they only had five water stations because that was the, that was the, that, that was the, the regulations at that time. Five. I ran one last week, and we had 16. Uh, we had 16 water stations, and I was panting. I was like, give me more water. But Gabriella, why she's famous? Because she missed the fifth and last water station. And she had to run the rest of the race 
totally dehydrated, and she entered into the stadium at Los Angeles Stadium looking like this. Last 400 meters, she was stumbling on the line. People were going up to her trying to help her, but she was pushing them away because she knew that if the judges came up and touched her, she would be disqualified from the race. She was saying, leave me, leave me. And she says this as, as she was interviewed afterwards. You just tried to put it aside and just concentrate on your race. My head and everything was still functioning. I knew where I had to go. And through dehydration, your body just cramps up, you know. But I told myself, just keep running. Try to stay upright. My muscles just didn't respond. And I knew if I would stop or sit down at that moment, it would just be the end of it. I was just determined to make it to the finish line. I'm in the Olympics. I want to finish because this is my one and only race. And if it was any other race, any other marathon, I would have stopped. But this was the Olympics. The cheering and the applauding was so loud, and that's just what kept me going. Uh, the medical attendants, as I was mentioning, were watching her, walking beside of her, uh, saying that she was still sweating, so she's still okay. We're going to let her go. But she, right when she walked around, it took her some three, four minutes to walk around 400 meters, uh, which is pretty fast already, actually, <laughs> as I think about it. But she stumbled across the line in two hours and 48 minutes. And what's even more fascinating is that she wasn't even last. All right, she finished 37th out of 44. I hate to see what the other people look like uh, that day uh, in L.A. And maybe you resonate with this. And maybe you resonate with this. You, you resonate with how your life is right now, that you're stumbling through. That every single day is a drive. It's, it's, it's hard for you. Life's a marathon, isn't it? It's grueling. It's hard. You're stumbling through, and you're like, how on earth am I going to make it through on this day? Sometimes just being a mom, if you're a mother today and listening in, sometimes we just feel this way. You're like, woke up again, diapers, bottles, got to get my kid to school, to that practice. I got to uh, make it through the day, make dinner, take care of the family. Like, how am I going to make it through another day? It's just a grind to get through, and you're in pain, and life is hard. Maybe you're not a mom today, but you also experience that because life is hard. Life is difficult. Maybe you feel this way because as you try to live out your Christian life, you're stumbling through. And you're like, How, where is the finish line? God, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it through. But the resounding message this morning, the good news this morning, is that you're not meant to live it alone. Yes, she would have been disqualified in this marathon if someone else touched her. But here in this life, we have this God that says you're not meant to live it in your own strength. I'm right alongside of you. You're not going to be disqualified from this race if you only lean on me and trust in me and hold on to me as you walk through this life. And let's do this together. And we've been in this series called, book, uh, called The Gospel in Motions, going through the book of Acts. And we've been seeing what it looks like for people as they depend on the gospel, as they live on the gospel, as they live and breathe on the gospel. Every single day, what does it look like to have this life. They depended on God every single day for his sustenance, for him to provide for their lives. Came across this quote uh, this week by Elizabeth Elliott. She's a Christ Christian author and speaker. And her husband, you might know her, is Jim Elliott, who died in the missions field, uh, um, uh, who was killed on the missions field. And she says this, the first thing you should do before crying on anybody's shoulder is to open your hands and lift up your pain to God. The first thing you should do before crying on anybody's shoulders is to open your hands and lift up your pain to God. She's not saying don't depend on people. 
Don't keep seeing your counselor. Don't go see that trusted friend and mentor. No, she's not saying that. She's saying before you do all that, though, we have a God that loves you, that cares for you, that wants to lift you up in your pain, in your struggle. You're not meant to run alone. And today in this passage, there are three conversations. Three conversations that changes the lives of the people that are involved and all centered around the gospel. And the big idea is this, that the gospel is powerful even when we feel powerless. The gospel is powerful even when we feel powerless. The gospel is able to change lives. The gospel is able to do immeasurably more than what you could ever think because of the God who's behind the gospel and the gospel that we follow and that we live out and we breathe that gives us breath in our lives. And how many of us, maybe this morning, as maybe you felt like that, that was you, you know, stumbling across the track, that was you stumbling out of bed this morning. <laughs> you stumbling into the sanctuary, out of your car, out of the bus, into this place this morning. How many of us have felt and are currently feeling powerless? Feeling like we have no energy, feeling like we don't have enough breath and energy for the day, that we don't have enough to make it through. But we're reminded today the gospel is powerful, to, in, is, in, is sufficient to bring life to even the most hard person, the person that's feeling out of it, that, that God is able to resuscitate us and give us new life and new breath, no matter how tired and how powerless we're feeling this morning. And the gospel is powerful enough to change the people. And the conversations today, the three conversations, is all revolved around evangelism. And you might have seen that theme throughout the book of Acts. Like, that's what this book of Acts is about. Every single conversation is an evangelism kind of conversation. The gospel is filled in them. And if you're not a Christian this morning, you're like, ha, there you go again. I came on this Sunday and you're talking about evangelism. You Christians always trying to beat the Bible into me. You're always trying to evangelize me. And that's the thing about Christians, right? They're always trying to convert me. They're always trying to convert me. And I'm going to be lying if I'm saying, yes, that's kind of true. <laughs> That's true. There's no other way to say it, really. But maybe if you kind of think about it from the Christian's perspective, try to think about it from the other perspective, maybe it might just make sense. Because if Jesus really is who he says he is, and we believe he is the one who rose from the dead, and he is alive today, and that he's seated in the right hand of God in heaven, he was sent to bring salvation and new life. If we believe all of that to be true, then how can we not share that? And how can we not tell you? We'll give you space and time. We all have friends and family that aren't Christian. We'll give space and time. But if we really didn't want you to know this, and this morning for us as Christians, we ought to ask ourselves, do we really believe it? If we don't really want to tell people, if we don't really want to share it, we have to ask ourselves that honest question, the difficult question of do we really believe this? Because the book of Acts, we see through the entire book, a whole book of people that believed this, that believed in the gospel, believed in the power of resurrection, believed in this Jesus, and they lived that out. And they went forth bringing that message. So here in this section of text today, there's Paul and Silas and Timothy. They're now in Philippi, and they have three kinds of conversations today. One with Livia, Lydia, Livia, Lydia, <laughs> one with a slave girl uh, who had uh, these owners over her, and then there was the jailer, uh, there was the prison guard. And there's something to be learned today, that maybe you're feeling tired and you're powerless, and you're like, there's so much to do in this life. What is it that God calls me to do? 
we get some hints here this morning, how we can minister and care for the people around us. And you might just find for yourself in these situations how God calls you to, uh, to act in the same way, that you might find yourselves in these very similar conversations. And the first person is Lydia. And we read this in verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expect to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the woman who had gathered there. And one of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. Now, what we need to know about purple cloth is that it's rare and it's expensive. So she's well off. She, she was a worship, worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. And that's a theme right in the uh, end of 15 there that we see throughout Acts, that when someone believed, they, they baptized, that they're joined together, that when they believe as an act of sign, a sign of that belief, they were baptized and showed the world and all around them that this is their new faith. And we see here that, that, that Paul and Silas and Timothy, they were going off and they wanted to pray. But Lydia, they found Lydia in the riverside, right, that they, uh, she was in this prayer meeting. And she's put together, she's well off, and she seems religious, but she's not yet a believer because we see later that she says uh, she came to believe, right? So everything about her, her life seems all put together. It seems like maybe she doesn't need God. But here, we see without a doubt that God is the one that opened her heart still. That the gospel is powerful enough to open people's hearts to the message, to God. See, the Lord opened her heart. Yes, it's God that opened her heart, but it was Paul and Silas and Timothy that was part of the conversation. That was part of the movement of her, uh, of God, movement of God in the spirit opening up her heart. God was the one who opened her heart, but it was Paul and Timothy who was sharing the message. So don't discount our role as well in God's kingdom in terms of someone's uh, coming to faith. What we learn here in this first conversation is that they're having a conversation beside the riverside, but what is it that they're actually talking about? And maybe you might find yourself caught up in these kind of conversations. In the hustle bustle of life, so many things I could be doing with my faith. What is it that God calls me to do? Maybe this morning for you, since the gospel is powerful enough to open hearts, maybe the call for us and call for you is to stay focused on having spiritual conversations. As you find yourself at school, in your family, in your friends, at work, that maybe these moments for spiritual conversations just come up. Because how does she get saved? She has a spiritual conversation. She has a spiritual conversation with Paul, Silas, and Timothy. See, God was the one that opened her heart, but it was Paul, Timothy, and Silas who was part of that conversation. And God allowed them to be a part of that. So for us this morning, and maybe this applies for you and you having a conversation with your kid or kids. Maybe it's your friend or your family. Maybe it's coworkers. Maybe it's the person on the street. Who around you can you sense that God is opening up their hearts? That you might just be at the right time, in the right place, and the right opportunity for God to use you to have those spiritual conversations with those people. Because we can be part of God's salvation work just by simply having a conversation. Not to have all the answers. Not to be a dictionary and to be full of Bible knowledge and to have every single answer. No, it's to walk with someone and to discover it together and to have these kind of spiritual conversations. And what do these conversations look like? We, we don't know. We just know that they were talking, but maybe they're asking about the meaning of life. 
what is life all about? Maybe they're asking questions like, is there really a God? Is there really a Jesus? Did you hear about him? And then Paul, Paul and Timothy and Silas, well, let me tell you about this Jesus. Maybe people are asking these bigger questions about life's purpose. Or maybe they're talking about taboo topics. Things that no one else wanted to talk about. But here, Paul, Timothy, and Silas, hey, I'm not going to not address that question and shy away from those topics. I'm going to engage and have a kind and loving conversation, non-judgmental conversation with the people around. It makes me think of a conversation or conversations I've been having with someone in our congregation over the last four, half a year or so. And every single time I have a, a meeting with him, it's been quite amazing because he'd be like, hey, before we can get into the material, before we can go through this book study, hey, I have a whole bunch of questions. He pulls out his phone and says, oh, listen, I'm like, here we go. Uh, so like, who is God? Uh, how do we know God is real? Can you explain to me the Trinity? Like, how can Jesus be God and spirit be God? And how does it all work? Like miracles? Like what's the purpose of miracles? Like Jonah and the whale? Like what? You know, everything. Like what's your what 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 what's your uh, what, what's your stance on 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 the Bible and what's the stance on creation? What's your stance on sex? What's your stance on homosexuality? What's your stance? It just keeps going on and on. I'm like, whoa, 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 calm down here. <laughs> In that moment, I'm reminded that we're called to have a spiritual conversation, not to have all the answers, but to engage and to address and be like, hey, let's discover this together. Let's discover this together because in these spiritual conversations, God allows himself to be known. God allows himself to be found. And it's been a joy to watch this now brother in Christ grow and to receive Jesus. And be part of our church and our family here. You never know what could happen just from having these conversations by being present. And by not shunning the questions away because in the church in this place if we're not safe enough to have these conversations where else can we have these kind of conversations and to be honest and to say i don't know but i am willing to discover them with you what i love in this passage here is that it reminds me of myself and all the christians in this space here now tuning in that all christians we've all benefited from spiritual conversations for other people that we asked these sort, sort of questions that provided answers that were sufficient and some that were a little bit short, but we discovered it together. And sometimes I've learned later on that some of my mentors on purpose didn't answer the question fully so that I will go discover it for myself. It's like, what, you know the answer? Why didn't you just tell me? It's because if I told you, you would just not tried afterwards. But I love this. Lydia, after the gospel opens her heart, she opens her home. There's a response at the end. And we see that there's a response for us that we know our hearts are open to the gospel. When there's an action for us, when there's rest of our lives is open, that we're willing to share in the brokenness. We're willing to share in the messiness. We're willing to share with other people. To say that, hey, my life isn't together, all together just because I believe in Jesus. I'm still wrestling with this. But hey, let's walk together and walk in the messiness together. Let's live in that space together. So the gospel opens up her heart. And she opens up the rest of her life to the people around. And so it should be, ought to be with us. And that's a challenge for us. Maybe it's your physical home that you want to open up to people. But actually it's a call for us. How can, as we receive the gospel today, how can we open up the gospel to, in our homes to people in our lives? Uh, whether it's you're a mom today and that's to your kids. You're like, I don't know how to teach them. 
look for these spiritual conversations. They might ask. Cohen asked this. It kind of comes in very subtle parts. He's like, Daddy, are you preaching this morning? I was on the way here, on the way home. He's like, and it's hilarious at home. Sometimes he just grabs a mic. He just stands on the, on the table. Like, I'm preaching, everyone. I'm preaching. I'm preaching. I'm like, is that what I sound like to you? <laughs> it's like, he's like, I'm preaching. Listen to me. I, I'm preaching. I'm talking to his sister. Uh, I'm like, and afterwards, he's like, hey, Daddy, wh- why do you preach? Right? And that's the little moment. I'm not going to provide, like, a huge textbook answer. But, like, hey, this God calls us to share a message. It's little moments like that. And, and I, I challenge that each and every single one of us, we have moments like that as well. Okay, that's the first conversation. The second one is with the slave girl. Verse 16, once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, these men are the servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Christ Jesus, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. So you might be feeling powerless. You're like, what is it that I'm meant to do with life? I don't have enough energy. Maybe it's to focus on these spiritual conversations that come here. But here, maybe second for us is to help people that are stuck spiritually and physically. Maybe that's your challenge this morning. Here we meet this slave girl who's the opposite of Lydia. Lydia who's put together, who was wealthy, who seems like she had everything all set before her, but she needed Jesus. She needed God. We here we meet the slave girl who was the opposite. She's probably younger. She has a demon, and she's also a physical slave. Uh, this means that she's not just as spiritually enslaved, but she's physically also not doing very well. She's taken advantage of and badged of, and she's not on her way to a prayer meeting. She's going off prophesying and saying these sorts of things. And maybe she didn't even have an interest in going to a prayer meeting. She didn't want anything to do with that. She didn't have control over her life. But look what happens. Paul prays for her. Not out of love, I would say. It seems like not out of love. (laughs) But kind of out of annoyance. Out of annoyance. Prays for her because he's annoyed. Paul didn't do it caringly and tenderly like, you know, we want to imagine Uh, Every time we share the gospel, we're praying for someone caringly and tenderly uh, or full of compassion. He didn't say because Paul, the text here doesn't say Paul was so full of compassion and love and gentleness and kindness. He turned around and prayed for her. No, because he was annoyed. He's like, he he was annoyed. Verse 18, became so annoyed that he turned around. That The Greek translation of the word annoyed is annoyed. All right, like he was annoyed. He didn't want to be there. He was annoyed. He didn't want to hear her speak anymore. Turned around, but this is important. Didn't rebuke her, okay? Didn't rebuke the person, rebuke the spirit. That's really important. Rebuke the spirit, the evil spirit that was inside of her. He wasn't annoyed at her, but the spirit that he knew was in her and freed her at that moment. And this is encouraging and maybe more than a few ways, but for me, for those moments where maybe I feel like this, right? I'm annoyed. I'm like, God, I don't know if this is an opportunity. I'm tired. I'm out of it. I don't want to do, do it. But here, Paul kind of prays this annoyed prayer. And this annoyed prayer changes someone's life. It frees someone from spiritual and physical bondage. Because how does she get saved? She just gets delivered from, from this situation, from this prayer, from Paul, who's annoyed. That even in our tiredness, even when we're giving out of our emptiness, even when we're doing things out of our annoyance, has sinful and as bad as that can be, God can still act. 
God can still move because the gospel does not depend on me, but it depends on our God. The gospel is powerful even though we feel powerless. That it is God who is moving and acting. The gospel is powerful enough to free. Powerful enough to free people from their spiritual bondage and even from the physical bondage. I came across this in my reading in the last couple of weeks. It's from Mary Santos, and uh, who's a professor at Tyndale, and Mark Naylor, he's a, a prof at Tyndale, uh, at Trinity Western. And they say this in, his, in their book, Mission Amid Global Crises, which is so needed in our crisis today in, in the pandemic. Uh, they, they asked this question in the beginning, how does an evangelical church address humanitarian crises in a way that it maintains obedience to the witness of the cross? How does a Christian community provide substantial biblical orientation to a crisis? How do Christians cooperate with secular institutions without compromising our primary commitment to Jesus? What examples of Christian service provide a witness to kingdom transformation and model love and redemption? And they cannot go on to answer this question, which is the rest of the book, uh, answers this question, but summarized in this way, the Christian hope is not that we will not face crises, nor is it that we will be able to overcome every crisis. We seek to be faithful and place our hope in the Savior who has conquered sin, death, and the devil. The crisis of the cross was overcome by the resurrection that transformed the disciples with confidence in the living Lord Jesus who builds his church, the Holy Spirit who empowers and the Father whose plan of the kingdom cannot be shaken. Here we see that the Christian hope is not to run away or not to wish and pray away that we won't face any pain at all because that's just not reality in this life. The call for us is to be present in the pain, to be in the moments of people's suffering. Maybe part of the answer for us is actually just being on the lookout and being there for people and being present, even if we're tired, even if we're ignored there, God can still act and still work. And maybe we're to stay focused on spiritual conversations, but maybe for you it's this this morning, stay focused on proclamation of the gospel of the word, but also practical acts of compassion. That, that, that's what God calls us to, that they're to be combined and joined together, that every single act is a proclamation of the gospel. Maybe you get a moment to share with your words of why you do, you're doing what you're doing. But often we do acts of compassion because of what Jesus has done for us. We go out and live out in this way. And I don't think I've shared this story with many of you. Uh, this was last fall when uh, the pandemic was still raging on. We are you know, in and out of isolate, uh, um, of quarant- um, not quarantining. What's the word again? Uh, sorry? Yes, whatever that word was. <laughs> uh, we, we were, you know, we're, not, we're supposed to stay home, but... Uh, we're not supposed to gather uh, too, uh, with too many people. And I was walking through Metrotown, and I had to use the washroom, which, okay, this detail not really important, but I was going to use the washroom. And when I went in the washroom, uh, what happened was, uh, a guy and I were washing our hands, and we saw, we heard this noise coming from a stall. And we looked over, and we saw a guy lying on the floor uh, inside of the stall. And his, one of his arms out, out underneath the stall, and the other leg was out. And we could hear someone trying to gasp for air. And what happened was this person passed out inside of the washroom. And his head was pinned against the wall in a right angle and was having trouble breathing. And in heroic fashion, the other guy kicked down the door because I'm not as heroic as he is. Uh, and we opened. We saw drugs everywhere. He was OD'd, pinned up against the wall. I went out to call someone. And at that moment, 
And when he came back in, he's still gasping. He's turning colors. At that moment, I remember very specifically in that moment, should I help this person? There's drugs. And the other guy's like, I'm not touching him. I don't know what those drugs are. He's not even wearing a mask right now. I don't know. Does he have COVID? And then at that moment, I remember looking at him saying, he can't breathe. We have to do something. I'm like, you grab the legs. And I went over. I remember grabbing his head and then slowly lowering over. We tried to roll him over. I remember at that moment making a very deliberate decision. Even for me, I would say, oh, yeah, when there's acts of compassion, when I'm to help someone, of course I'll jump in and help someone right away. But at that moment, as I reflected back on that moment, I actually asked myself, there was an opportunity for, there to, for me to help, but I actually thought, no, I shouldn't do something. And that challenged me. That cut me to the core. I'm like, man, I call myself a Jesus follower. In that moment, I actually cared about my life more. And I don't know, I'm just totally judging this person. Like, just saying all these things because of all the drugs and all the things that are going around them. But here, we're called. Whether we're tired and whether we're annoyed, God can do something amazing. Whether there's conversations that happen around the situation. Maybe the people that you have a conversation with and the interactions that go on. But proclamation and acts of compassion as a Christian, they're integrally linked together. And a call for us is this, that we can be part of God's salvation story just by practically helping people out. It doesn't have to be as drastic as that story. And I hope you never face something like that. But we're called to help out. Whether, again, you're a parent this morning, that's you practically and spiritually helping out your kid or those around us. Maybe you know someone who's stuck in a situation that needs you to physically be there for them. Maybe you know someone around you stuck in a toxic relationship and you need to stick in and step in and be there for them. Maybe someone is trapped in a life of drugs and addiction. You need to get them help. Maybe someone is languishing in their mental health and you just need to sit with them. You need to be with them. Maybe someone is stuck feeling hopeless and joyless in their life. Maybe someone needs medical attention and you need to drive them to the doctor or to the hospital. Maybe someone needs you to sit and to pray with them. Whatever it is, what is the acts of compassion that God leads you to in the every single day, in the every week? And maybe that's your call today because that's what changes this girl's life. That's what frees her from that short interaction, from that short moment of prayer. Maybe we all know people that need help from their situation. And again, in those moments, it's not us who saves. It's the gospel that changes someone's life, that calls us and moves us into action, that changes us. We're part of God's work, but God is the one that saves. Thirdly, we see here, there's the prison guard that gets changed. The prison guard, the prison guard gets changed. So Lydia gets saved. The slave girl gets delivered from what's binding her, and she gets saved. Now there's the prison guard, and the disciples, they're on their way, you know, caring for people, and then they end up in prison, which they often do for living out the gospel. Uh, but what, what, what happened? They're doing such good things. Why would they put in the gospel? Well, the owners, they weren't very happy because they, this girl lost the, the gift of prophesying, and that's how they're making money. Uh, so they weren't interested in the salvation that this girl just received, but they're interested in the money that they could make her. And it's not the first time in the Bible that Christians were told to leave something uh, because they did something good. Remember Jesus drove out the demons and they all went to the pigs and all the pigs went off the cliff. And then they're like, hey, uh, Jesus, like you just cost us a lot of pigs. So, and also what you just did was, you know, kind of scary. So can you leave? 
a town. Uh, often that's what happens when Christians go in and do something good. People don't recognize it as good. They're like, I don't know what that was, but I want you to leave. There's often something negative that comes from it. So don't automatic, automatically associate that to be not of God's will. That you think that if you fall in God's will, there'll be smooth sailing? No, often there's turbulence. As the disciples here, they, they, uh, they, that, that, uh, that happens to the disciples here. Because Paul and Silas, they get put into prison. I don't know what happened to Timothy here. Uh, <laughs> maybe he snuck out. Maybe it's because they didn't arrest him because of his citizenship. Maybe that's something that some of the commentaries say. Uh, but what we read here in verse 25, they get arrested, Paul and Silas, and they're praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And at once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. Imagine being there that day. Uh, the jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped, which would have been true. He would have been sentenced to death if the prisoners did escape uh, on his watch. But Paul shouted, hey, don't, don't harm yourself. Don't harm yourself. We are all here. Then we meet this jailer. And these jailers, uh, often they're seen battle. And you think, oh, they're a jailer, so they're not good in battle or they're punished. No, it's often because they've been rewarded from battle that they get to come home and rest. And this is considered an easier job for them instead of being out in battle. So, so he has seen battle. He's decorated. Uh, he's hardened. Uh, he's seen it all. He's been torturing and beating them. Uh, as we read in the text just before this, he has no compassion on them. He may be skeptical about life, and he's hardened by life experiences. But we see how the gospel with the slave girl is able to, uh, the gospel is powerful enough to free. The gospel is also powerful enough to open hearts. But we see here that the gospel is also powerful enough to move hearts, to move someone's heart in a direction that you didn't think they would be in before. And what ultimately ultimately moves his heart? How does he get saved? By experiencing grace. By experiencing grace. Maybe you need to focus on having those spiritual conversations. Maybe it's being involved and freeing someone physically and spiritually. That's what God's calling you to. Maybe that's what you need to get involved with in your, with your kids' lives, with your friends and your family. Or maybe thirdly, it's just for you to display grace to the person, to show grace, to display grace, because we can be part of God's salvation story by allowing others to experience grace through us. Paul and Silas, they're being beaten by this jailer. The prison doors swing open. The prison walls fall down. And Paul could have left and nothing was stopping him. He could have done it. He, would have been, he wouldn't have been called faithless if he left. This God opened a way there. We saw this with Peter, right, a few chapters down back in Acts 12. The same thing happened. And Peter's like, oh, woo You know, he's like, he, he left. He, he, he left. But why did Paul stay? Why did Paul stay in a tough situation, a place where the prison guard, the stealth, wanted to beat him, and ultimately was torturing him. Because Paul knew he had a tremendous sense of calling and identity and hope and purpose and, and knowing where he's supposed to be. Paul knew he was meant to be in Philippi for a reason. Paul knew that he was there to do God's will, even in that moment of opportunity, which he'll be free later. In this moment of opportunity, he sees a moment for escape, but no, he sees a moment to display grace which is he's called to. Moment to display grace to the jailer. 
Because in verse 29, the jailer called for lights and rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And because Paul and Silas didn't leave, I don't know about the others, they seem to all stay because they're just in shock altogether. Verse 30, he was brought to them and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. This moment of grace, this person that was just beating him a moment ago, and he's probably super annoyed as well, this prison guard, because he's beating him, and they're all chained up, and they're still singing hymns, <laughs> still worshiping God with open wounds. This prison guard falls back in front of Paul and Silas and says, what, what must I do? Why are you displaying grace to me even though I'm doing this to you? Their moment of grace displayed who this God is that they believed in. And what must I do? What was their answer? Believe in the Lord Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus. How can this be the best answer for being rescued? Just think about how strange of an answer that is. In that moment of coming, what must I do to be saved? I don't know if some commentators are challenging this question. They don't know if the prison guard is saying, hey, what must I do to be saved from me being executed <laughs> because the you know, prison doors are, are open and free on my watch? Or maybe he's also asking, what must I do to be saved spiritually because he's seen their life of grace? Maybe it's both. But no matter what the question is, the answer is the same. It's Jesus. Very Sunday school-like. <laughs> but it's Jesus. Jesus is the answer to every problem in our lives. Jesus is the answer to the world today. Jesus is the answer to our guilt and our shame and the mistakes that we've made because you've tried to forget about it. You've tried to work it away, to numb it away, but it hasn't Work. Jesus is the answer to the past mistakes that we've made. Jesus is the answer to our relational problems because we've tried again. We depend on our own strength, but we've fallen short. And we keep yelling. We keep being angry. We keep doing the things that we do not want to do. But Jesus is the answer because he calls us to something different. He gives us power to do something different. He gives us power in the moments of powerlessness. He gives us hope in the moments of hopelessness. Jesus is the answer in that moment of that terminal illness when you're told of that answer. That you still have that hope that's no other, that's shaken, that even though your life is fading away and you're coming down to your last breath, that you still have this joy and this hope inside of you. Why? Because Jesus is the answer to our sin that separa separates us from Jesus, from the death that we're going to die. We now live in him forever because of this Jesus. Jesus is the answer. So, then they spoke the word of God to him, maybe what I just shared, <laughs> to all the others in his house. And at that hour at night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized, that theme again. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. He was filled with joy. Don't we all need more of that? today, this morning, this joy that comes from the gospel. As we come to the end of this text, why are these three conversations recorded for us? Why are these three conversations recorded? And I think I believe this to the core of my being, that the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is powerful when we feel powerless. The gospel is enough for us. The gospel changes lives. You see, you never know what acts of grace would do to the hearts of the people that you're listening and encountering to. Whether you're a mom listening in this morning and you're like, how on earth I'm going to raise this child? 
Maybe you want to focus on spiritual conversations. Maybe it's freeing them practically and spiritually. Maybe it's displaying grace when they spill the milk 10 times, 15 times, 20 times, over and over and over again. And to show us the gospel is for everyone. There's ways to reach out. No matter what kind of kid you're trying to raise, no matter the kind of people you encounter every single day, it doesn't matter if you're put together like Lydia, someone that's spiritually interested, they still need Jesus. Maybe that's who you're ministering to. It doesn't matter if the person is physically and spiritually captive, they still need Jesus. Maybe God's bringing someone like that in front of you. But it doesn't matter if, if the person is skeptical and hardened by life like the jailer. Simply, simply by an act of grace, it softens someone's shell. And, God, and the gospel seed is planted into their heart. And maybe you're feeling tired this morning. And you don't know what life is bringing you. And you're like, God, what is next? What's, where, where are you leading me to? I don't know what I have enough for another day. And I felt this driving into the church this morning, that you're, if you're following and walking along with God, and you're being faithful to his call, you are where you need to be. And, and trust that. Trust him. Trust him. Trust that he is working in you, that you are the right person for the role, whatever he's calling you to, that you feel overwhelmed with right now. And specifically this morning, if you're a mom, that you are the right mom for your child. I felt I heard that specifically this morning. That you feel like someone else could do a better job, or you want to, you feel like you're not enough for your family, you feel like you're not enough for your kid, but you are the right person that God has brought. And because you're seeking Him, you are in the right place. And again, this morning, I don't want to be oblivious to those that are dealing with broken relationships with their kids and with their moms, those have moms that have passed away and those that have lost their kids or kid. And those who are struggling with pregnancy. And this morning, I just want to empower all of you in this moment that the gospel is enough and sufficient to give you hope and joy. The gospel is enough to change us and to empower us. So I haven't done this before, but what I want to do is actually to ask all the women in the sanctuary to stand at this moment. Whether you're a mom or, or, or not, I want this to be a call on all women in the sanctuary, if you feel called to stand this moment, I just want to pray over us. Uh, pray over you. Right now, you can stand. <laughs> it's okay. Don't be shy. I'll give you a moment to pray. And the men in this congregation want us to look around and be like, these are the women in our congregation, women of faith that we're called to support and to love, and be sisters in Christ, that we're called to, to cherish and to take care of. I'm going to end the service this morning uh, just with praying for all of us uh, right now. Father God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you, Jesus, that your gospel is enough, that you are enough for every single one of us. Lord, I pray for all the women here, Lord. No matter what it is that they're going through, no matter the lives that you're called into, Father, I pray that you instill in them a calling that is unshakable. Father, I pray that you would clothe them, Lord, with strength and with power that they will follow you. But Lord, before you call us to anything, whether it's motherhood, whether it's to our roles, whether it's to any mentorship and relationship, 
whether it's to any, any sort of calling in this world, God, your first calling to us is to follow you. So, Father, I pray for these women, Lord, that they will follow you fiercely and unwaveringly, that they will know you and hear the voice of the Father who calls them to his arms and say that they're loved and they're known. At this moment, Lord, I pray for the moms that are taking, that are taking care of their kids at home and here. Pray, Lord, that you would empower them and strengthen them and give them, Lord, a grace and not to be so hard on themselves and know that they're doing the best that they can. Father, I pray, Lord, that those are, are struggling with infertility, with loss. Lord, I pray that you will comfort them, that you will be sufficient for them. Lord, I pray, Lord, that our strug- that with, with, with mother, uh, that have strained relationships with their mom or with their kids. Father, I pray for healing, that you will bring closure, that you will bring, uh, that you will bring healing in those relationships in Jesus' name that you will put together, Lord, and do what only you can do, even though it seems impossible. So, Father, for all these women in this place, may we all support and pray for them, knowing, God, that you've calling them closer to you. We thank you for them and for the woman that you've created them to be. In Jesus' name we pray.